Chapter 7, verse 1 Judge not, that ye be not judged. How many times have we heard this quoted from unbelievers to us? How many times have we been in the streets preaching and giving out tracts and unsaved people come up and say, you shouldn't judge, the Bible says you shouldn't judge, and yet they are judging you for judging them. Kind of laughable really, isn't it? But we were told to judge. We were told to use righteous judgment from John 7. In Revelation 2, the Lord commends you for judging those that called themselves apostles and were not. The entire Old Testament is full of judgment. There's an entire book called Judges. Look at David and Saul. They were at enmity with one another for many years. And Samuel wrote everything down in a book about these two kings judging. But it has to be done properly. There's no point in judging a person who's committing a sin if you are committing the same sin. That's what is being dealt with here. Two, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Get your own house in order first, before you judge your brother. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold a beam is in thine own eye, thou hypocrite, First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. The Bible is such a simplistic book. Common sense prevails when you read both Testaments carefully and in its correct context. If you are in sin, you can't tell somebody else not to do what you are doing. Do as I say, not as I do. No. You have to be sin-free before you deal with somebody else. Let he that is without sin cast the first stone. Now let me say this, because what you don't want to do is come across holding thou and say, well, I can't judge anybody because I'm a sinner myself, and therefore never open your mouth. You were told to proclaim from the housetop the gospel of Christ. When you preach the gospel, it's not your opinion. The Holy Spirit is working through you to articulate the gospel. But if you are going to confront somebody who is in a particular sin, make sure you are not also in that particular sin. That's what is being clearly stated here by the Lord in the seventh chapter. Six, give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Dogs were unclean animals to the Jews. So here the Lord is saying, if you have something which is holy, don't give it to the dogs. And there are different interpretations for this, but the most commonly used one, and for me it is a good one, so I will quickly share it, would be not to present the gospel to a party 
who has continued to reject it, don't expose that party to more biblical light if they continue to reject it because they become more accountable. If somebody has rejected the gospel, walk away, go somewhere else. The world is a vast place when it comes to getting the gospel out. But uh, again, technically speaking, the dogs here would be non-Jews, Gentiles, perhaps. And uh, as I say, when you go to Acts the Apostles, Peter addresses the Jewish leaders and calls them heathen. So different dispensations, of course, but nonetheless, a dog here isn't a saved party. A goat isn't a saved party. Use your discernment. Be wise about who you speak to and how you speak to people as well. Seven, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Nobody is good but God. If you then, being evil, everyone is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Even when you are saved, you are still evil. You are still a sinner. You still deserve to go to hell and burn and burn. You deserve to go to hell with Hitler and Stalin and burn and burn. No liberal will tell you that. No Catholic priest, no Anglican vicar will tell you that. But the Bible tells you that. There isn't a just man on the face of the earth. What are you asking for here from verse 9? The new birth to be saved. Good things. And uh, that will be elaborated on as we go on. 12. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's your golden rule. Treat people as you would have them treat you. Every world religion teaches it, and it is completely logical. Treat people as you would have them to treat you, because we are all made in the image of God. Everybody walking on the earth today is made in the image of God. Hence why we are to treat people with respect. That's why we stand against injustices. That's why we stand against abortion or genocide or human trafficking. When any injustice arises, we confront it. We deal with it. We speak out against it because we are all made in the image of God. And God does have a love for his creation. But that doesn't mean that everybody is going to go to heaven. You need to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the gate. He is the door. 
He is the good shepherd. You come to him. Many will want to be saved. Over one and a half billion Muslims want to be saved. Around the same number are also Catholic and they also wish to be saved. There are 13 million Mormons, they wish to be saved. There are six and a half million Jehovah's Witnesses, they hope to enter into their understanding of the Kingdom of God. The Moonies, every world religion wants to be saved. The Hindus wish to be saved, even the Jews wish to be saved. If you add up all of the world religions, there are more theists than atheists in the world, and all of the theists wish to be saved. But the gate is straight, and the entrance into destruction is broad. The road to hell is broad. Many will go into hell. Few will go into heaven. That's because people won't get on their knees, they won't cry unto the Jewish carpenter who hung on the cross for six hours, who never wrote a book, never travelled outside of Israel, never had a wife, never had any children. They won't come to the Jewish carpenter who lived a very modest, simplistic life. They won't come to him and throw themselves at his feet. It's pride. That's why every other world religion teaches faith and works. And if you do this, and if you do that, that will be how you get saved. You will be saved by your good works. You will be saved by keeping the five pillars of Islam, or going to Mass, or going to Marian shrines. Or if you are non-theist, you will hopefully be saved, if there is a heaven, by your charitable deeds by helping disadvantaged people. The main reason why so many celebrities raise so much money for their good causes is due to their consciences. They've all made a lot of money, they've all lived pretty immoral lives, and they want to ease the bad consciences that many of them have. If you watch any of these telethons, any of these charitable events when these celebrities are on the phones trying to raise money. It's ludicrous because these celebrities are worth millions and millions of pounds or dollars or euros, depending on which part of the world you live in. And yet they are begging you, the average working man or woman in the street, to give to their favorite charity. If every celebrity in the world wrote out a cheque for one million pounds or one million dollars or one million euros, they could alleviate most of the poverty just like that. But they won't. They want you to give your money, but they won't give their money. They'll go on television, they'll go on the radio, and they will do a live set if they are a singer, and they will perform their latest recording and that gives them publicity of course and people will go out and download their latest mp3 recording or if they are a film star they will come on and talk about their latest movie and that will give them promotion and people will go along and watch their latest project these people win either way and they are seen like the pharisees that we've read about in the sixth chapter they are very similar to the religious elite they have this outward righteousness 
this let's all get together, let's all deal with the world's problems, let's alleviate poverty, let's alleviate AIDS, let's save the whale, let's save Burma, let's deal with the Tibetan problem, let's deal with this, let's deal with that, and the list goes on and on and on. If you can do something yourself, you should do it yourself without broadcasting it. They are the hypocrites, these modern day celebrities, which is condemned in scripture. But back to 13, you have to enter in at the straight gate. You have to make a decision. Don't just look at this from an intellectual perspective and think, mm, that's interesting. It doesn't apply to me. It does apply to you. You have to make a decision. You have to come to the Lord on his terms or don't come at all. Many are going to try and be saved. Many are going to stand before the Lord and say, but Lord, I did this and I did that. I went to this part of the world or that part of the world. Or I gave up my career and stayed at home and raised somebody else's children or my sick mother or my sick father. It's not going to save you. You have to come his way and it's going to be hard. And it's going to be hard because it's going to mean you having to repent, you having to show true remorse over your sin. You will have to become a beggar and be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you don't come his way on his terms, he won't save you and you will end up in hell. Period. 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raving wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. That isn't an easy part of scripture to decipher. The wheat and the tares grow side by side and for the most part we don't know those of us that are saved who are the tares. We can be walking with a party for 10, 15, 20 years. We can be fellowshipping with a party for 10, 15, 20 years and not really know that party Look at the Old Testament. Look at the kings. They were outwardly righteous. They were still saved. But what happened behind closed doors? You wouldn't know. The false teachers, the false prophets, even the best discernment ministries in the world can't identify every false teacher. Only last night I was reading a blog put up by a pretty well-known international ministry exposing yet another discerning ministry a very well-known ministry and I was thinking to myself are there any good ministries left that haven't yet been exposed how many more scandals do we need to hear about how many more apostates do we need to expose how many more tears how many more false prophets are there left to be exposed. Many, I would think. Acts chapter 20 said that the false teachers would come from among you. You could see a million miles away an unsaved politician or an unsaved celebrity 
trying to hoodwink you, trying to deceive you, trying to get you to depart from the living God. You could see that pretty much straight away. But if a religious person came to you with a nice collar, with a nice hairdo, with a nice suit, it might not be so easy for you to discern the wheat from the tares, the good from the bad. And it does come with time. But uh, here, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. And yet we've already seen that you can still be a sinner. You can still be prone to sin post your new birth. You won't be exempt from it. And if you are still not sure, go to the book of Galatians and read the second chapter. And you will see Peter, a man that has been saved about 25 years, needing to be publicly rebuked by Paul for his sin, his sin of compromise, and even the Catholic scholar of the Middle Ages called Grantian, I believe his name was, said that Peter was preaching another gospel. That is a pretty severe indictment, because if he's preaching another gospel, according to Galatians 1, he is cursed. But he was still saved because he writes first and second Peter and I believe he is in heaven today with the Lord so whatever Peter was doing in Galatians 2 was dealt with he was restored and he went back on the right track with the Lord 21 not everyone that saith unto me Lord Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my father which is in heaven the will of the Father was found in John chapter 6, and it was simply to believe that he came from God. You were to believe on him as the Messiah. You were to trust him as your Savior. Then you walk on as his disciples. The kingdom of heaven, as I've said repeatedly, is a physical and a spiritual kingdom. Here especially when we get to the 22nd verse, is speaking about the Lord's return at the end of the tribulation. And if you are saved, off you go into the thousand-year reign, initially, and then on into eternity. But here, people living today, when they get saved, they are in the spiritual kingdom of God, awaiting the Lord's return. 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Matthew 25, all the kingdoms are assembled before the Lord, and you get the sheep that have been saved and have gone up to Jerusalem to meet the king, to be rewarded, and then off into the millennium they go, and you have the goats that have also survived the tribulation and they will go up to Jerusalem and they will be condemned to hell but among some of those goats are these people found in 22 but we prophesied in your name we proclaimed to people your message in your name we even cast out devils so they believed and in your name 
we did many wonderful works. So they believe. They may have done many wonderful works. They may have gone to charitable events. They may have raised money for war-torn countries. They may have even run marathons. But that's not what's going to save them. Look at 23. And then what I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. To never know somebody means you were never saved to begin with. These are religious people. They called Jesus Lord twice. And they claim to have done three sets of works. Miracles, exorcisms, and prophesying in his name. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And these people go into the lake of fire. Ultimately, due to not being regenerated to begin with. 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Christ is our rock. We build our foundation on him. So when the floods come, we don't get washed away because we are built on him. He is our rock. He is our foundation. He is the rock that Moses followed. He is the rock that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians. We build our world on him. We follow him to the ends of the earth if necessary. We trust him without exception to be saved. 26. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Wind, judgment. Rain, judgment. Storm, judgment. If you are building on sand, and here the word Peter means sand in Greek, by the way, then you are going to fall. If your foundation is on a person, like Simon Peter, for example, then you will end up falling. You will end up being destroyed. You will end up losing everything because you haven't built your foundation on the rock. The rock being Christ Jesus. If you built your foundation on a person like Peter, the first pope, allegedly, then you will end up being swept away when the judgment comes. Because you aren't found in Christ. You aren't trusting in his righteousness. You are trusting in your own righteousness. And that's why many, from verse 22, will be denied by the Lord. And by 23... Off they go into eternity without Christ. They were never saved to begin with. They didn't understand the plan of salvation. They were like the Jews found in Romans 10. They wouldn't trust in the finished work of Christ. They kept adding to the work of Christ. Purgatory, good works, mass attendance, confession. Doing this, doing that. They kept putting works ahead of the finished work of Christ. But here, 
21. Just because you call him Lord, Lord, doesn't save you. 22. You may claim to have done great things in his name. It won't save you. 23. You are told to depart from him due to your iniquities, due to your sins. 26. You had another foundation. 25. When it came, you weren't secure. And by 27, you've been washed away down the stream. What were you trusting in? You weren't trusting in Christ. You never knew him. That's why you end up in the lake of fire. 28. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as a scribes. Of course, his words must have penetrated everybody present that day. Everything this man said and did hadn't been witnessed before. The scribes and the Pharisees had great authority. They were looked up to, they were revered as these great people. And yet the Lord arrives from nowhere, really. He hadn't been to rabbinical school. He wasn't in the temple every Sabbath. He wasn't sacrificing animals on behalf of the people. He was a traveling preacher. He slept out in the open. He walked for miles every day. Yet this simple Jewish carpenter had more authority than all of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's why they hated him. Because in their mind, the longer he was here, the longer he spoke, the more people would believe on him and follow him. And they would depart from organized religion. And these good Pharisees, these good scribes, would all be out of a job. So they got together, called a council, and started to plot to have him killed. They, of course, couldn't do anything to him prior to his timing. He was on a divine schedule. But uh, due to their unbelief in the Old Testament, due to their unbelief, in the present Messiah they still wouldn't believe on him but his teachings his message and his demeanor must have astounded the multitudes and that concludes the seventh chapter and it also concludes the famous Sermon on the Mount 